basically this evening we're kind of moving, moving on. Paul is moving on. He's, he's basically moved on from Athens um, to Corinth. <clears throat> now, if Athens was the city of learning, basically, it was kind of a university city, the city of learning, Corinth really was famed, as John mentioned last Sunday, really, for being a city of immorality. And it was common parlance at the time uh, that they would talk about kind of living like a Corinthian, which basically meant to live a very immoral lifestyle, to live like a prostitute. And that was what uh, Corinth was famous for. And the other thing with, with Corinth is that not only was sexual immorality rife there, um, but it was also kind of by the culture at the time, it was given a status, a kind of a quasi-religious status, because the, um, the, the temple cult of Aphrodite or Venus was based in Corinth. Um, and so sexual immorality would actually be a part of their worship. And so he was in a very pagan uh, society. That's where, where Paul was coming into, into Corinth. Um, in many ways, that that kind of bears many parallels to, to our society, doesn't it? You know, it's a society where sexual immorality is very rife, but also it is elevated and given, not only is it uh, accepted and commonplace, but it's given a kind of a quasi-spiritual status. The other thing about Corinth um, is it was, it was basically a Roman, it was a Roman uh, colony. It was a Greek uh, city originally, and it was a Roman colony. So it had a variety of different people in it. So it would have had Greek, Greeks and Jews. And it would have been quite a um, pluralistic or a kind of a multicultural city. So that kind of, that, that brings to mind, doesn't it, some sim- similarities with today and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and Paul. And I think that's very pertinent, very interesting for us, really, because... Paul was preaching in, in Corinth, and there are lots of similarities between Corinth and between the situation we find ourselves in today. And I think that we can, we can learn some very important lessons from Paul and from his ministry in Corinth that kind of translate quite nicely over to us today. Um, we find, I mean, before I'm really going to get into it, I mean, I just want to say very briefly that obviously the gospel was the thing that was Paul's priority. Everywhere Paul went throughout Paul's ministry, we find that the gospel was the thing that was his priority. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because within the church today, people emphasize different things. We find ourselves as believers in this society that's very hostile to us um, and has all this immorality. And we can kind of feel overwhelmed by that. And we kind of think, well, what's the response to that? How, How should we deal with that? And so certain Christians have responded and said, well, you know, we need a program of social change. That's what we need to introduce. Or maybe we need to influence the government and we need to get the government to kind of the imposition of Christian values from the top. Now, I'm not against those things. I think that, um, you know, social... uh, Social programs and, and organizations which try and reflect Christian principles, say like the Christian Institute, they're all good things. I'm not knocking those things. But we do find that Paul, finding himself in Corinth, his priority was the gospel. Always it was the gospel. That was the first thing. He didn't try and uh, initiate some kind of social program or, or deal with things in that way. He, he always kept the gospel central. Um, 
And that's what Paul said here. He believed the gospel was powerful, and he believed that that did have the answer to the needs of Corinth, and that's got the needs of us today. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew and also for the Greek. So the fact that Corinth, it was a mixed culture, it had Jews and Greeks, um, that was the society, that was the situation Paul found himself in. But he still believed that ultimately it was the gospel that was the answer for the problems of that society. It was the gospel itself. So, um, basically what I want to draw out from this passage as we go through and we see Paul and we see how Paul ministers is just to really look at some of the gospel priorities that there are, some of the gospel priorities that we can see in Paul's ministry. So we'll just read through together. In verse 2, it says, And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. So basically, we come across these two people called Priscilla and Aquila. We don't know a huge amount um, about them. Uh, we know that they were Jewish. We know that Claudius in BC 146, I think, if I remember rightly. Not that that's important. Uh, or, or no, it probably wasn't then. I'm, I'm bad with numbers. Um, <laughs> basically, he'd issued a decree because there was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of insurrection um, uh, in the area that Pr- Priscilla and Aquila came from. And actually it's thought that it was the introduction of Christianity into some of the synagogues there that had caused a lot of problems. So Claudius just really thought, I want to get rid of these troublesome Christians, get rid of them out of the whole area. And so Priscilla and Aquila had to flee. Um, and, and that's how they ended up um, with, with Paul in Corinth. Um, now, this is the interesting thing is with Priscilla and Aquila is scholars are a bit divided. I, I read some commentaries and they said, you know, Priscilla and Aquila, we don't think we're Christians because otherwise Luke would have mentioned that. Um, and other people, probably more people, thought that they probably were believers and maybe that had something to do with, with the reason why they were expelled. It's a little bit unclear. I don't think that actually matters too much because the priority that I think the Lord is bringing out from this the first gospel, oh, hang on. The first gospel priority that we need to bear in mind in, in this day is the priority of relationship. So it's the priority of relationship in gospel ministry. So we see Paul, he worked, um, he was, he was a rabbinic uh, student. All rabbinic students at the time would have had a trade. They would have been given a trade, like tent making or whatever. Paul's happened to be tent making. And, um, and whilst he was doing this, whilst he was making tents, weaving all the cloth together, he was working with these guys, Priscilla and Aquila. And you can imagine that as he was working with them, he was mentoring them and he was sharing with them. Now, regardless of the factors, whether they were believers or not believers, he was mentoring them in ministry. He was pouring his life into them. He was sharing his life with them. And we find that that's an important gospel priority, the priority of relationship. That's really where it stems from. That's what we see Paul doing here. His tent making was a bridge, really. And um, for a lot of us, our work can be a bridge as well, can't it? If we've got secular employment, you know, for Adam and I, when we're in surgery or whatever work you're doing, that's really a bridge, isn't it? And so we see Paul using this bridge of his tent making as a relationship. 
And we're going to see later on that much fruit came out of this time that Paul spent with Priscilla and Aquila. The Lord really blessed that. He really used that very powerfully um, in the lives of Priscilla and Aquila in the early church. So, so we're going to just that relationship. I think of all the priorities we're going to look at tonight, there are only five, but of all the priorities we're going to look at, I think probably relationship is the most important one because it's relationship we see later on that bears um, the most fruit. So we see Paul having this fruitful relationship with Priscilla and Aquila as tent makers. Uh, hang on, going the wrong way. But as we move on through the text, we're just going through the text basically, looking at the priorities. The next priority in verse 4 is it says, He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he persuaded Jews and Greeks. I want to just talk briefly about this idea of reason. It talks about Paul reasoning with them. Now, the Jews um, and the Greeks, I mean, Greeks in particular... As we heard last week with the different philosophers that there were, the Epicureans and the Stoics and so on, the Greeks were a very reasonable people. They were people who really valued and prized intellect. And that's very similar to, again, our society today. I wonder if people might... It's arguable, isn't it? But I wonder if we've ever lived in a time or a generation where people are more educated. You could probably disagree with me there. But we've certainly got more access to knowledge than we've ever had at any time, haven't we, in the past. And certainly through the internet, it's amazing. You know, if you'd have just, in the past, if you had a really big country home and you'd had a big house full of encyclopedias, you'd never have access to all of the information that, that we have now. Um, it's, it was the same then, it's the same now, but particularly now there's an overflow of information, there's an overflow of, um, of, of reason. The other thing, sorry I'm getting off the track here, but talking about reason, the other thing um, about our society is that people no longer defer to authority. They don't defer to people just telling you something. We see, Adam and I see that all the time in the GP surgery. So people come and they know what's wrong with them and they know what their treatment is and you can't, you can't sort of tell them. So people have reasoned things out for themselves. They've got a reasoning themselves. But the Bible does teach, I believe, that, that there is a priority of reason. Our faith is a reasonable faith and it is important to employ reason as Paul did here. I believe, I believe I'm right in saying that I think the gospel really, it appeals to the, the totality of, of man. So it appeals to our mind and our will and our emotions. Every aspect of us um, is involved um, in, in responding to the gospel. Um, and that includes reason. Um, and it is vital. Vital today. Vital in today's, uh, today's situation. Um, that we are able to give a reason for the hope that's in us. And, and Peter talks about that, doesn't he? Um, uh, you know, in the scripture here, he says that you can give a defense for the reason that is, is within you. And we know from Isaiah that God himself reasons with us. He reasons with us. And it's reason on the basis of the revelation of his word, isn't it? But God himself reasons with us. So I do think that's key. Um, I think we see that even on a practical you know, the street outreaches and so on, don't we? That it's, to be honest, before I even came to this church, there were lots of things I hadn't really thought about before, like quite basic things about Christianity, like about how do we know that the canon is the canon? How do, when, do I know when the New Testament was written? Do I know, um, you know, why it's reliable? How is it authentic? It's really key that we have, have some kind of grasp of those things. We should educate ourselves in those things. 
There is a balance here. I remember being at university and, and spending a long time arguing through with my flatmates about Christianity from philosophical points of view and, and morality. And I was really pleased with myself at the end. I thought, yes, I've got them. They're going to have to believe now. But actually they don't because reason isn't the whole story. I think reason is important at removing obstacles from people coming to the gospel. It's important at removing obstacles. But reason isn't sufficient alone. I think we have to remember that, that reason isn't sufficient alone. And Paul says, um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. So whilst we need to have the priority of reason, whilst we need to be able to remove those obstacles and present a reasonable defence of our faith, we also have to remember that it is a spiritually discerned process, so we need to be reliant on the Holy Spirit. So relationship, reason... Um, oh, hang on. Oh, my goodness. You think, how, how, how complicated can it be? Uh, <laughs> um, the, the third point, I want to move on and uh, look at the next uh, verses here. It says, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So because we live in an increasingly paganized society, in a a society which is increasingly hostile to the gospel, We have to know how to deal wisely with opposition. And we have to expect opposition. Um, We've been very blessed in this country um, in that from the, I guess from the time of the Reformation, probably to the mid-20th century, we lived in a uniquely blessed time when the status quo in this country and in America was very much tied up with Christianity. Um, So, although there's always been opposition to Christianity, it wasn't so in your face, perhaps, as as it is now. But actually, the Bible teaches us that opposition is normal. We shouldn't be surprised by opposition. We should expect opposition. In fact, Jesus himself said, didn't he, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. You can imagine that. People like to have little promises and things, don't they, that they put on their, like, you know, kitchen cabinets or like on their mirrors. But can you imagine putting that one every morning when you're brushing your teeth? You know, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But, <laughs> but that is a promise. It is a promise of Jesus. It is a truth. Um, it's hard to know, isn't it? But I think sometimes as Christians, we're, we're so upset and we're lamenting the fact that we're no longer a Christian society, but we have to accept that reality and move on. And we have to know how to deal wisely with opposition. Um, what we see here in verse 6 is um, we see that when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I'm clean. From now on I'll go to the Gentiles. So I think that does speak to us of the fact that sometimes wise, um, wise opposition to the gospel can actually involve kind of leaving people for a time after we've presented the gospel to them clearly. If they clearly reject it, sometimes the Holy Spirit will show us but it's actually wise to leave those people for a time. Um, because people can increase their judgment if we keep speaking to them and they're not going to receive it. Jesus talks, uh, doesn't he, 
um, in, uh, he talks about basically casting your pearls um, before swine. And he said, you know, lest they trample you underfoot and tear you to pieces. So there is a time where if people are being very vehement in their opposition to the gospel, and um, we actually do need to, the wise thing to do can be to actually, you know, leave them, leave them for a time, continue praying for them and leave them in a time. It talks in Colossians, doesn't it, that we need wisdom with these things. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. So there isn't one approach, but there is a time when we have to, have to, uh, you know, kind of leave, leave people really, um, uh, you know, leave people to deal with that. What I think is interesting here is that Paul says, um, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. One of the things that um, I think the Lord really <clears throat> kind of showed me as I was as I was going through this, as kind of quite a challenging thing and a, and a sobering thing, really, is that there is an obligation, and I know we hate to say that word because you know we're, we're believers in in, gra- in grace, obviously, and we're saved through grace. But there are obligations on us as believers, um, and I believe that we do have an obligation to share the gospel. And, and God does say that if we don't share the gospel, that we will have blood on our own hands. We will be guilty of the blood of people. Ezekiel wasn't a man who was sharing the gospel as such, um, but he had a message from God to give to the people of Israel. I just want to read a few of the verses from there. It says, now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his, in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have saved a soul. So Paul says here, um, I am clean, I'm innocent of the blood of, um, of, of the blood of all men. In fact, later on in Acts chapter 20, Paul says, Therefore I testify to you that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So I think that's quite sobering. I think that's something that really sobers, sobers me, you know, that, um, that God says to us, you know, you will be blood guilty. You know, there is a sense in, we can, in which we can be blood guilty if we do not share the gospel. Um, and God will hold us who have light. He will hold us accountable for that. But Paul knew that he wasn't um, accountable. Um, he knew that he'd done what God had called him to do. He'd fulfilled the call of God on his life. And God does call us to do the same thing. So, sorry, it's quite, uh, quite sobering, but, but I believe, believe true. Um, just moving on. Um, reading verse 7 uh, onwards. And he said, he departed from there, and he entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. So we have what we see in these verses, I believe, particularly in verses 9 to 16, is we see something that encourages us. 
We've just, just talked about being blood guilty if we don't share the gospel. But we do have some encouragement here. We have the encouragement of trusting God for his protection, his sovereign protection of the gospel witness. We see that, don't we, that, that God promises. The first way we see that is God promises Paul. He says, don't be afraid to speak, for I am with you. And isn't that just the most precious promise? I, th- I sometimes think in the whole Bible, the most precious promise is there is just the promise of the Lord's presence. You know, when the Lord just says, I'm with you. You know, in um, uh, Psalm 23, you know, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. You know, you are with me. Your presence is with me. The presence of the God of the universe is enough for us. That's a comfort for us just to know um, that God is with us. And Jesus says, doesn't he, uh, when he's coming to the Great Commission, he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he says, um, just as he's saying to the disciples, go out, preach the gospel, he then says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's what, that's what the Lord promises to Paul. He says, I am with you. I'm with you. In a sense, that's more precious than the promises of the things that God is going to do for us, just the fact that he's with us. Just the fact that we can know his presence. Just the fact that we can enjoy being with him. The promise of God with us. And that's what I believe encouraged Paul. Just God saying to him, I'm with you. No one will attack you to hurt you. I have many people in this city. And that may be referring to the fact that the Lord knew, he foreknew those who would believe um, in Corinth. So he knew that many people um, through the ministry of Paul um, would come to trust in Jesus Christ. But then what we see, if we go on to verses 11 and 17, and we see not only does God promise to Paul to protect him and to protect the witness of the gospel, but also um, through situations, through um, Gallio, through what happens with Gallio, he protects the gospel witness again. So Gallio was, he was the brother of Seneca. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Seneca, but apparently he was quite famous. He was like a famous Greek philosopher. Um, He was a Stoic. Remember hearing about the Stoics the other week? But <clears throat> Gallio's brother was um, Seneca, and he was a Stoic philosopher and a statesman. Um, but anyway, this this um, this chap Gallio, he was the the governor of this of this region, and some of the Jews came against Paul with some false charges, some false charges that weren't true, and. Um, and, and and you know they tried to say accuse Paul basically of breaking the law. Um, but basically, Gallio wasn't really interested. It's the reality of it. He was quite um, indifferent to them. He says, it's a question of words and names and of your own law. Look to it yourselves. I don't want to be the judge of such matters. So Gallio, this was really a landmark moment. What we, we, don't, we can sometimes miss when we're reading these verses is that this was a landmark moment. Because if Gallio, at this stage, had sided with the Jews um, against Paul, then this would have set a precedent in that region, and that would have actually stopped the gospel from going forward. Um, but, um, but God over- intervened, he overruled, basically, um, and the gospel went forward. The decision went in the right way for the gospel ministry to continue. Um, so we, we do well to remember, you know, that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So God was in control of this situation. You know, he was in control. All the opposition that was coming against them, God was in control. And he knew, um, he, he was orchestrating events. He was in control of Gallio. He was in control of this situation. Um, and he was working his sovereign purposes so that the gospel could continue to spread in that region.
Um, and just moving on, um, <clears throat> just looking at verses 18 to 21. It says, so Paul remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and he sailed for Syria and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria for he'd taken a vow and he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Um, I think what we can see from this is that Paul, the next priority, we are getting to the last one now, but the next priority that Paul really had at this time was a priority of consecration. We see that Paul had taken um, a Nazarite vow. Um, and we read about this in Numbers chapter 6. And we, we, what we read happened is that there was, there was a period of time when someone wanted to dedicate themselves to the Lord, that they would actually abstain from alcohol. Um, uh, they, they, would, um, they would grow their hair very long. At the end of that required period of time, they would go up to Jerusalem they would cut off their hair and they would actually offer the hair um, along with a burnt offering um, as a sign of dedication to the Lord. Um, and that's what Paul does. And he made it, he seems to have made it quite a priority. Interestingly enough, Paul seems to have made it quite a priority. He said, you know, he must by all means um, keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. And he made this consecration to God quite a priority. And I think what we can gather from this really is that consecration for us if we're going to be used of God in gospel ministry we must be consecrated we must be set set apart for him Paul had obviously witnessed an intense worldliness at Corinth he'd witnessed um, much immorality um, uh, and uh, you know all the things that were going on in the temple he'd witnessed all of those things and he really wanted I think at this time we don't know the exact circumstances but he seemed that he wanted um, to consecrate himself to the Lord away from this worldliness. Um, and so that's what Paul did. He, he went to Jerusalem and he kept this, far, kept this uh, vow that he'd made to the Lord. So consecration, you know, another important uh, priority really in gospel ministry. Um, and then just to, just to finish really, what I want to uh, speak about briefly is about Apollos basically. Um, It then says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So we, we now meet Apollos. We now meet this other guy called Apollos. And um, we know a few things about him. We know that he was an eloquent man. He was mighty in the scriptures. So he was well versed in the Old Testament scriptures. And um, he was fervent in spirit. So he was, he had a passion for the Lord. He had a passion for the things of God. But we know that he only knew the baptism of John. And what that means is that John the Baptist, um, had preached, hadn't he, that Jesus was the coming, the coming king. He was the coming Messiah. And um, he preached that people should repent and turn away from their sins. But what he didn't, what he didn't know, um, was the full implications of obviously the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it was Priscilla and Aquila, um, who then heard him and they were able to explain to him more accurately about Jesus, about who Jesus was, um, about what Jesus had accomplished and about what the full implications of the gospel were. Um, so we see Priscilla and Aquila taking him aside. And what we really see then is, Really going back to what I was talking about at the beginning, you know, these different priorities that we've, we've brought out from this passage. 
But really, what I think it all stems back to is this priority of relationship. It was the time that Paul had spent with Priscilla and Aquila um, that enabled them to then be able to mentor Apollos. And Apollos was someone who then went on to be a very powerful advocate for the gospel, and he was a vigorous defender of the gospel. And it was really because Paul had poured so much into Priscilla and Aquila that they were equipped to be able to do with this. Um, So I think that does speak volumes to us, doesn't it? It speaks to us about the fruitfulness of ministry, um, the fruitfulness of relationship um, in ministry. And it's one of those things we often overlook, and I think it's one of those things we often overlook because it's quite hard, isn't it? It's quite hard to have relationship with people and to have relationships with people um, that are gospel relationships and that that kind of, um, you know, encourage people to trust in God for the gospel. And it can be hard, it can be hard to pursue those relationships, but we see the fruit that that, that, that brings, basically. Um, we see that Priscilla and Aquila, they, they continued, basically, um, to be very close to, to Paul and, uh, very used by him. We see that Priscilla and Aquila, they eventually started a church in their own house. Um, in Romans 16 and verse, uh, 3, um, Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So, so really, just want to talk about Paul in Corinth. Um, a, you know, a society which is very similar to ours, has very similar challenges to the society that we find in. And we just find these priorities, really, that come out. We find, first of all, I think the key priority, the key priority of relationship, um, dealing wisely with opposition to the gospel, um, uh, the, the importance of um, consecration, um, and also, you know, just the fruit that comes out from that right ministry, the fruit that comes out from that right gospel ministry. Um, so they are the things, really, the things that Paul modelled and the things that Paul pursued. Um, they are the things that um, we also need to be um, pursuing today if we want to be fruitful um, in what the Lord would call us to do.